Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello everyone, it's Fraser here and before we get into this week's Spike podcast, I just wanted to let you know that Brendan O'Neill's new book, A Heretic's Manifesto, is back in stock on Amazon. Amazon had a little bit of a glitch there, uh, but that is now fixed. So if you had tried to buy the book and weren't able to, now you should be able to do so. Also, if you want to get a hold of a signed copy of the book, our special offer is still running. If you donate £50 or more to Spiked, you can get your hands on a signed copy for free and it will be delivered straight to your door while stocks last. To donate your £50 and to get a hold of your signed copy of A Heretic's Manifesto, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate. That's spiked-online.com forward slash donate. And also, we'll throw in a year's access to Spike supporters. That's our online donor community, which comes with all kinds of other brilliant perks, just as a way of saying thank you. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and joining me again in the studio, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And down the line, we have an extra special guest, the author of Values, Voice, and Virtue. It's Matthew Goodwin. Great to be with you. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about the downfall of Boris Johnson, the arraignment of Donald Trump, and the arrest of Nicola Sturgeon. So it's been a momentous week or so in politics, on both sides of the Atlantic, in fact. We've seen pretty much the downfall of Boris Johnson. He's resigned as an MP ahead of this privileges committee report, which has come out today, the day we're recording it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's incredibly damning. Um, we'll get into that in, in a little bit. Donald Trump has appeared um, in a Miami courthouse, becomes the first former US president to be charged with a federal crime. And Nicola Sturgeon, north of the border here, has been arrested over the SNP's party finances scandal. She's been released without charge. Tom, let's talk a bit about this Privileges mm -hmm. Committee report, because that's what's generating all the excitement today. I mean, what's your reaction to it? I can't help but feel that this is just the kind of last flourish of the years-long campaign now to get rid of Boris Johnson. I know saying that makes you some sort of crazy conspiracy theorist mm. as far as the mainstream media are concerned, or some Boris booster, of which I'm neither as it happens. Um, but at the same time, when you take a step back from all of the discussion, when you look at what is being alleged and what punishments are being meted out against him, you can't help but wonder if everyone has just gone a bit mad, has just yeah. gone a little bit carried away with themselves. So I should, I should say... This particular report, obviously alleging that he misled Parliament, also impugned the Privileges Committee, that he kind of therefore deserves an incredibly weighty sentence. They suggested that if he had still been in Parliament, they would have suggested a 90-day suspension, um, as well as rescinding his kind of post-Westminster MPs past that he would otherwise mm -hmm. be entitled to. On the question of specifically, did he mislead Parliament over 
lockdown and over the Downing Street parties. Obviously, you can unless you can look inside his soul, you can never actually be sure. But I think that you can either say that he lied or was painfully deluded. The idea that yeah. these things were going on and he thought everything was on the up and up stretches credibility to say the least. It's like with the lockdown breaches, you know, despite the fact that Partygate is turned into such a circus, no one would deny that Boris Johnson and many people in number 10 broke lockdown rules and that, that is a genuine scandal. Yeah. The question is the weight that's been given to it, the hysteria that surrounded it, the treatment of him as if he's been found guilty of serious corruption charges, the frankly slightly naive sort of commentary, which is to suggest he might be the, the first prime minister ever who has ever lied mm. either to parliament or to the broader public. He's certainly the first one to be caught out perhaps so spectacularly. So without wanting to sound cynical, it does just feel like as flawed as Boris is, as mm. bang to rights as he is in many respects, that this does feel like that final moment in a years-long campaign to get him out and not to get him out of Westminster because his own constituents rendered a verdict on him or even the broader public. It's because extra democratic means we used to, we used to dispense with him. And I can't help but feel that this is just the final full stop at the end of all of that. Now, Matthew, I mean, whatever we might think of this kind of anti-Boris hysteria, you've written that actually it's still time to move on from Boris Johnson. You know, he's he's not our saviour. He's not the man we should look to if we want a populist government, for instance. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, I'm completely and utterly bored of uh, Boris land and the continuation of this obsession with Boris Johnson among our media class and indeed, I think, in our national conversation. I mean, I if you look at what Boris Johnson actually did when he was prime minister, it was basically the opposite of what many people, including myself, would want to see from somebody who is genuinely reforming the system, who is genuinely trying to push through a much broader political realignment of the country, who, who might even have been able to step above left and right and do something really intellectually interesting in the country. And Boris Johnson consistently, in my view at least, has shown that he is incapable of doing that. And the fact that we are still talking about Boris Johnson to such a degree in this country, I think reflects, in my view at least, just how um, insular and how weak our national discussion has become. I mean, if you look at all of the interesting conservatives around the world today, none of them are, none of them are in Britain, Yeah, right? They're in America, they're in France, they're in Italy, they're in Sweden. And Boris is kind of a symbol of that, like the way in which the Conservative Party have checked out of these very interesting intellectual battles that are now raging on the right. What is the new economic policy? What is the relationship with the state? How should you push back radical progressivism? I mean, Boris has got nothing to say about those questions. And so all I would point out is that there is an enormous opportunity cost, which comes with the Boris saga in Britain. And the opportunity cost is the far more interesting intellectually salient and urgent debate that we should be having about how to carve out a much more meaningful, serious alternative to the broken politics in Westminster. And that's where, you know, what I've tried to say this week, at least, is it is time to move on from Boris Johnson, not talk about the comeback, not talk about what's next, not talk about where the Conservatives go. It is time to draw a line under this and move on and start thinking about who's next, what are the interesting ideas, and how can we reform Westminster? And Tom, it is worth dwelling a bit on some of the things that Boris squandered, that kind of mm -hmm. golden opportunity of Brexit, of the um, AC majority winning over the red wall. Mm -hmm. Why did he fail so spectacularly? 
Well, I think there's so many different factors that are at play. I and mean, we've talked a little bit about the very concerted campaign against him, but if, he shouldn't have been naive. Anyone who yeah. was trying to shake things up was always going to experience that kind of pushback. I think, especially when you're dealing with someone who really didn't like being disliked, he was almost particularly personally incapable of maybe kind of pushing in the direction that he might have pushed in. Um, there's also the point in which I think both Boris fanboys and mm. Boris haters make the same mistake, which is to treat him as a kind of unique mercurial figure, someone who embodies, if not actually single-handedly brought about the kind of populist revolt of 2016 and of recent years. It's a much longer running process um, that we're talking about here. Obviously, Boris Johnson is not single-handedly responsible for the referendum result, although he was significant in it. Of course he was. Similarly, the 2019 general election victory was built on a much longer term trend where you had um, old Labour voters who were uh, moving away from the Labour Party. Um, The 2017 election result, you know, whilst on the surface, it didn't seem like that much had changed beyond Theresa May getting a humbling. She only picked up, I think it was six pro-Leave Labour seats. Um, Beneath the surface, the ground was already shifting quite considerably. And Johnson incidentally went into 2019 not particularly popular. He was never as popular during the 2019 campaign as even Theresa May was during what was a dreadful campaign, if we remember all of that. So this is not to do down his significance. I think he'll he'll rightfully take his place in history as the person who made sure Brexit got done, uh, to coin a phrase. Um, And I think no one can ever take that away from him. But at the same time, I think there's a tendency to think that when Boris goes, Brexit goes, as they say. When Boris goes, populism goes. They've personalised, mm. the elites have personalised this particular threat because it's easier for them to deal with. It's also easier for them to dismiss. They can pretend that this guy just hypnotised the public rather than there being a much deeper revolt yeah. against the technocratic neoliberal establishment. Um, but that's not what's happening. And, and as Matt's saying there, you know, he's proven himself, despite all the campaigns against him, to be you could most charitably say, a very imperfect vessel for that populist revolt. Yeah. So it's definitely time to, to look elsewhere. And now, Matthew, I mean, you, you mentioned the you know, Conservative Party being dead. Um, I mean, looking at it now, it just feels like a kind of technocratic wasteland. I mean, would you share that view of the current state of the Tories? I mean, it's become, it's become clearer than ever now that Boris has left. But I mean, maybe it was that anyway. Yeah, look, I mean, I think the Conservative Party is in uh, a really serious existential crisis. I don't really think it knows what it is. I don't think it knows where it's going. I don't think it really knows who's voting for it. I don't think it knows how to inspire those voters. And I always say to people, it's really important to look at the British Conservatives through a comparative lens, because that's when you really get a sense of just how lost they are. You know. I was in Italy recently, and you look at the, the very interesting debate the Italians are having around big tech, gender identity, migration. You go to Sweden, the debate they're having around migration, around integration. You go to America, the debate they're having about changing this, the rights relationship with the state around intervening in institutions to try and take on radical progressivism around a new economic industrial strategy. All the interesting debates on the right at the moment are happening outside of Britain, right? And that, in in essence, reflects the intellectual weakness of the post-Brexit Tories. And 2017 and 2019, as Tom has, has you know, hit the nail on the head, you know, they were both 
really representative of this unique opportunity the Conservatives had. And then the moment they were given this great majority by much of the country, they just didn't really know what to do with it. And that's why they're clinging to, you know, Boris and they're clinging to very simplistic five-point programs, much of which are beyond their control, because they don't really know what to say anymore. There is no serious post-Brexit conservative philosophy. So I'm at the point now where, you know, I basically am working on the assumption that I don't really think the Conservative Party is going to be um, a, a an intellectually viable, coherent movement for a very long time. I think they will probably end up losing the election next year. If they're wise, they will have a very serious intellectual battle over the nature of conservatism, and they won't just rush back to a sort of bland, technocratic, David Cameron-type politics, but they will seriously engage with the realignment that is underway in the country, that is still underway today. But I think for those of us who are interested in democracy, who are interested in reform, uh, changing the existing uh, uh, institutions, um, we you know don't look at the conservatives. Basically, there, there needs to be a, an alternative from outside of that uh, party because I don't really think it's capable at the end of the day of actually responding to the many voters who are out there who are wanting you know a very clear cultural and economic message. So I suppose in a way I've come round to <laughs> the Peter Hitchens school of thought in that. <laughs> I just really don't think the Conservative Party, because of the parliamentary party, mm. because of the donor class, because of the legacy of history and path dependency, because of where it's from, I don't think it's capable, actually, of delivering what millions of people in the country want to see. I was just reminded as you were talking about one of the greatest things about the immediate kind of post-Brexit referendum moment, of which it felt like that both of the two main parties were going to kind of collapse in on themselves. It was mm. a wonderful moment. <laughs> no one knew what to do. Um, and it was the sort of thing where it did remind you that whereas the Tories have squandered this particular opportunity, they were always, it felt like, kind of structurally incapable of properly digesting it without yeah. even descending into infighting, not properly getting it, whatever. As Matt was alluding to that I'm, I'm sort of less interested in the sort of future of the right or conservatism as I am democracy and this populist mm. revolt and so on. And there's a lot of crowing at the moment. There's a kind of sense that politics has returned back to its kind of 1990s, 2000s factory setting, that it, it was all back to dry managerialism. The only choice you get is between sort of sparkling and still Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. And I just can't help but feel that those people who feel like populism is over like just because Boris Johnson's gone, all of those people who really wanted to hit back at the political establishment have thrown their hands up and said, no, you guys were right yeah. all along, please take over again, are just deluding themselves. Mm. I mean, we've seen it um, across the Western world where even when you see po particular populist politicians, some of the others we're going to get on to talk about, disappear, the debate suddenly morphs and goes elsewhere. There are other, other movements spring up, other individuals spring up. If yeah. it doesn't have a party political form, it can take other forms as well we've been seeing that across europe recently so the one thing that's cheering about this particular moment is that i'm not convinced for a second that the populist revolt is over even if boris johnson as an electoral proposition definitely does seem to be at this point and let's move on to talk about the us um some pretty extraordinary uh, allegations made against uh, donald trump some potentially quite serious crimes the um classified materials that he's been keeping hold of he's been accused of obstructing the police and their investigations tom do you want to explain a little bit about those charges no i'll, I'll try and do it briefly because yeah. there's been a lot of uh, reporting a lot of chatter about this so 
it's almost like a kind of the situation we're talking about with Boris Johnson, but with much higher stakes. As yeah. far as what he's been accused of are incredibly serious felony crimes um, in terms of hoarding these documents, including kind of classified materials, top secret materials, and then willfully obstructing the attempts to retrieve them and to investigate them. You know, mm-hmm. even telling his own legal team to move them to <laughs> evade the people who were who were coming to investigate them and retrieve them. So it's incredibly significant. I mean, if you want national security, you can't have um, former presidents who in this case was apparently showing them and bragging about them to people when they came to his various golf resorts. I mean, that's obviously not something that a serious country is going to want to countenance. Um, but the problem is, is that this, these charges, as serious as they are, and as bang to rights as Trump may well be, we'll see what happens in the course of the um, of the hearings, is the fact that it comes in the context in which the American institutions of justice have become incredibly politicized and very much aimed towards Trump. So you have Trump supporters who are saying, not without reason, that how is this any different from Hillary Clinton's emails, in which she obviously was not investigated. You've also got the various other legal actions, which though not as serious as this particular one, um, are still kind of demonstrated that there's been this appetite amongst the American institutions of justice and its um, investigatory bodies and so on to try to get him on one thing or another. But with Trump, as with Boris, two things can be true at the same time. One of which is that that's certainly the background Mm. to what we're talking about. That's also something that I think will make it quite difficult, particularly for a lot of his supporters, to take these as seriously as they might if it wasn't for that long-running campaign. But at the same time, the charges against him are quite serious. And another example, not unlike Johnson, but on a slightly different level, shall we say, of his own particular failings, making it so much easier for mm. the people who are out to get him to get him. Yeah. And, and Matthew, I mean, one one of the curious things um, that we didn't really see this with Johnson, but with Trump, it's pretty clear that every time um, some new authority goes after him, he just is completely unaffected in the polls, certainly among the Republicans. He, you know, he carries on. Yeah, I think that's right. Um you know, I was just uh, looking at the polling before coming on here. And if you look at the latest numbers uh, on Trump versus Ron DeSantis in the primary polling, Trump is is very, very safe and leads ahead of, of DeSantis. He's upwards of 50% on the primary vote. I suspect even with all of the legal chaos and the um, charges against him, he will comfortably win the Republican nomination. And one of the other things that Trump does very well uh, and you've seen it reflected in how Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence have been struggling to respond over the last couple of weeks on social media. And I would urge you to just take a look at some of their Instagram accounts and the comments underneath them because they're very revealing. It's essentially what's happened is Trump has sucked the oxygen out of the room of mm. this Republican uh, nomination race. So, you know, even Ron DeSantis, every time he posts, is bombarded by Trump supporters saying, you know, you should have run in 28. You know, you're 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 not loyal to Trump. You know, this is all part of a sort of, you know, deep state conspiracy, et cetera, to to remove Trump. And so I think what we're going to see, and you know, I'm happy to be wrong on this, but but I suspect what we'll see is Trump basically galvanizing the diehard Republican base, winning the nomination comfortably. But then, you know, most likely, even if he is convicted, most likely going into the presidential contest, um, doing exactly what he did in the midterms, which is galvanizing moderates and independents to vote against Trump uh, and and for Biden. And this Mm. is ultimately the big problem for US politics in that the moderates and the centrists who are mobilized now, 
are mobilized in a way that they do view Trump as an existential threat to U.S. democracy. And the charges that are underway, even if Republicans will say, look, this is this is all part of a conspiracy. You know, this is all confirming my bias against the liberal class, et cetera, et cetera. It will ultimately come down to the moderates and the independents. And as we saw in the midterms, they are mobilizing in a very big way because they see Trump and his candidate, his candidates as a threat to U.S. democracy. And that fundamentally is his problem. Right. And now that he's sort of DeSantis has been dragged into this problem, too, because he's gone too early. I think in hindsight, DeSantis will regret running uh, this time. I suspect he, he will look back and think he should have gone in 28 because, you know, the moment is sort of rapidly fading, in my view, from DeSantis. So it's going to be a fascinating year. But just one final comment. Mm. Remember that, you know, this all started in 2016, right? And one of the interesting things that you are now seeing on both sides of the Atlantic, and I think Tom alluded to this, is that for the people who really put their hopes in radical outsiders to shake up the system, to many of those voters, this is going to look like an establishment stitch up to essentially silence those outsiders, to essentially take them off the chessboard. And that in turn is going to have unpredictable political consequences. There will be successors to these movements. There will be a successor to Trump. There will be a successor to Boris Johnson. There will be people who will seek to pick up the baton and continue to run with it. So that's why 24 is so important, because 24 is going to give us an insight into how those voters are reacting, whether they're staying at home, rejecting the system through apathy, or whether they're remaining loyal to their chosen candidates and their parties. And I think, you know, what is clear is we, we've not got any resolution to 2016. We're still stuck in a way in 2016. We've not managed to get out of it. Yeah. And, you know, a lot, a lot of this kind of, you call it liberal authoritarianism, whatever you want to call it, irrespectable authoritarian is, you know, is clearly a reaction to that moment, to that mm. great rupture when the voters put their middle fingers up to the establishment. Oh, no, definitely. And in America, it's been so pronounced. I mean, mm. that to my mind is a much bigger threat to American liberal norms, as they always like to say, is the post-2016 reaction, particularly the post-2020 reaction, yeah. um, where you have a very concerted attempt to effectively try to get rid of the populist movement um, by dint of investigations, the law, I mean, even revelations of Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, sending the FBI after parents who were protesting at school boards against mm. critical race theory and mask mandates and so on, let alone all of the kind of January 6th circus and so on. So all of that has been very, very pronounced. And to my mind, that as much as Trump has these authoritarian tendencies, his kind of right-wing snowflake, or his inability to believe that any election in which he doesn't win was is ever actually legitimate, I think time and again, the Biden administration certainly has proven that he's a rank amateur when it actually comes to proper authoritarianism, if you like. But I think the thing about Trump is, and this is partly why this sort of ceiling appears to have been, you know, been put so firmly in place in terms of his support is because of the fact, particularly whilst in 2016, there was a kind of sense that he was a wild card. He was yeah. the outsider. There was still, uh, people could still take a chance on him and mm. project certain things onto him and hope that something more fruitful might've come from it. But at the same time now, particularly kind of post-2020 election and indulging in these kind of wild conspiracy theories and um, acting in a generally anti-democratic fashion insofar yeah. as that particular result, that's 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 not the basis on which a substantial, meaningful 
decent sort of populism is ever going to be kind of formed. But it does feel like we've gone through the kind of wild cards. We've gone through that kind of phase of whatever it is that we've been living through. And it does feel like what we need now is something much more serious and substantial. The issue is at the moment, it's not entirely obvious where that's going to come from and what kind of form it's going to take, I suppose. There's another thing that's changed, I think. You know, if you look at if you look at Boris and Trump as the first wave of, you know, populists in power that were trying to deliver on that 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 rebellion. I think what they have realized is that it's not enough to put the radical ideas out there unless you reform the institutions. And I think if we were to look at the next five years, both in the US and the UK, I think the theme of institutional capture and reform is going to become much more pressing, right? It's going to become much more visible in our politics. And that will be reflected in, you know, you can see it in the UK in the debates around Dominic Raab, Suella Bravman, the treatment of Boris Johnson. You can see it in the US around um, many people who were in Trump one, you know, his first campaign saying the problem they really were confronted with is once they got into office, they realized they couldn't really enact all of the things they wanted to enact because of these administrative layers that were instinctively hostile to them. So you know, populism 2.0, if you want to call it that, perhaps beyond 24, is going to be, I think, a lot more about the institutions. How can you essentially reshape political institutions so they're much more reflective of a direct conception of democracy, giving voice to the masses, and are less wedded to what you might call an elitist conception of democracy that are giving voice to the kind of activist liberal minority? And you can see that in the growing discussion around schools, the growing discussion around universities, around media, around the representativeness of institutions. And I think that ultimately is where we're going to end up, is a much more vigorous debate about, about institutional capture and institutional reform. And finally, let's move on to talk about the arrest of Nicola Sturgeon. She's not been charged with anything, but she was questioned for several hours um, about the SNP party finances scandal. I mean, in a sense, we've known this has been coming for Mm -hmm. a long time. She was one of the three people named on the party's finances, but it is still a massive shock for a first minister, a former first minister, probably the most, Mm -hmm. the the longest serving first minister in in Scotland, one of the most significant figures of her generation to be arrested. It's incredible. It's also incredible. This is the third piece on our agenda today (laughs) because of how much has actually gone on (laughs) this week. But no, I mean, it's, it's incredibly striking. I mean, I wrote a piece this week about about Partygate and about Nicola mm. Sturgeon and how, whilst there's not very much we can talk about this particular case because of these incredibly con- these incredibly stringent contempt of court laws, which we might get into, um, the, f- the, the fact that you do have the former leader of the SNP, this kind of fated figure, particularly by kind of centrist liberals for so long, always held up as the kind of antithesis of Boris Johnson yeah. being arrested and then released as part of this investigation into finances party finances meanwhile the final act of boris johnson and the cake is finally bearing out you do have to wonder (laughs) what was probably the biggest scandal in the end um but yes i mean beyond the case that we can't talk about what a spectacular fall from grace Mm -hmm. um i think that's fair to say regardless of what the outcome of the investigation actually is and also i think one thing is worth saying is just how chilling it is that it's impossible to talk about it how fascinating it would be to see the commentary and the public debate and the where public opinion would be and the sorts of things people would be saying if we were legally entitled and able to talk about this but because of the fact that the Scottish interpretation of contempt of court laws are such that they don't trust 
jurors to be able to be exposed to any kind of public debate about any of this and you know even before someone is charged means that we're not able to have that so it's it's almost like this it's taking place in a bizarre yeah kind of parallel universe where you're not actually able to touch it and to be clear to our viewers and listeners you know if we were to venture an opinion mm-hmm. on the case, or, or particularly on a matter of her innocence or guilt, potentially, we could go to prison. Mm. <laughs> so, you, so that's why you've ended up with, if anyone's been reading the coverage of it, it's all very, um, you know, straight down the line, very factual, mm-hmm. um, very, you know, very muted, which mm-hmm. is which is a real shame because you know this is a serious issue that needs to be debated in full. Matt, like one of the other things, it wasn't just the party finances scandal that brought Nicola Sturgeon down. She also was probably, um, you know, one of the wokest leaders in the West, um, particularly the gender recognition bill um, was almost like the final thing, the final nail in the coffin. I mean, what did you make of that kind of period towards the end of her premiership? Yeah, I mean, I think it... I think it was very interesting. I mean, just on the the gender recognition reform bill, I think that's a really nice example of when uh, radical progressives push policies which reflect the the ideology that they hold, but which really alienate much of the rest of the country. I mean, if you looked at the the underlying idea for that piece in that piece of legislation, which is we should allow sixteen year olds to, to legally change their gender without medical supervision, um, and in a very quick um, period of time, very short mm. period of time. Um, I polled that and found only 20% of voters were supportive of it. And other pollsters found very similar things, which is basically telling us that on a lot of issues, and I've just done a load of other polling on should we allow trans athletes to compete in women's sports? Should we allow um, trans students to access um, girls' bathrooms in, in schools or universities and so on? You know, these are basically very unpopular policies. But what's happening is you've got a radical activist minority embedded in certain parties, embedded in certain countries that are basically imposing these policies from above. And the silent majority feels as though, you know, on the one hand, it's appalled by what's happening, but it has no real outlet for that. And mm. I think you saw that really in Scotland and you see it across Britain, to be honest. No, none of the mainstream parties are anti-woke, right? Basically, none of them are vigorously, consistently hostile and opposed to radical progressivism. None of them, not even the Conservative Party. And so um, many voters, I think, for for, understandable reasons, are quite scared to put their head above the parapet and say, actually, I'm not really down with this. And you also saw it, by the way, this week in in mid-June 2023, when Gallup have just come out in the US and they've shown that support for Trans athletes competing in women's only sports has declined sharply. The British Social Attitude Survey found the same. So the argument is actually being lost by the radical progressives. They're losing public support. Mm. But even still, politicians feel unable to step up and give that voice and to represent that in politics. And I think just the other thing about Scotland that I find interesting is, and I wrote about this in the Sunday Times a month or so ago, which is that if you take what's happening in Scotland as a whole, I think it really just points to the problems of really what happens with one party dominance. When you have one party dominating the political system, and there were bizarre features in Scotland around, you know, a wife-husband team Mm -hmm. essentially running the incumbent party, uh, which was, you know, nobody really picked up on that as being a unique, if not bizarre, feature of Scottish politics, but it it was. Um, And also, I think for many voters, they'll be looking at, all of the events in Scotland with a with a real sense that this is just deeply hypocritical 
on the one hand, we've had a, a party, a sort of cohort of politicians that have lectured the rest of the country about morality and behavior in public office. And then on the other hand, there's a series of reports and, and, and stories in the press concerning you know, what, what, what will appear to many voters to be morally questionable behavior. And I think that goes to show that many of the people who perhaps have claimed to be more morally worthy, more morally righteous than uh, the rest of uh, the political class often are, are no such thing at all. And finally, Tom, I mean, Humza Youssef, um, perhaps mm. his um, flailing around, you know, is itself an indication of just how dominant Sturgeon and mm. her family were at the top of Scottish politics. Yeah, I mean, Humza Youssef, he makes um, Boris Johnson look like one of history's great statesmen, doesn't he, in terms yeah. of how he's actually handling all of this. I mean, even this week, apparently, he was telling MPs not to call on Nicola Sturgeon to be um, expelled from the party or suspended from the party, yeah. I should say. So reliant is he on Sturgeon's legacy? It's the only reason that he's actually there, mm. despite the fact that he's such a bungler and has failed in every single ministerial brief he's ever been given. Um, it, is, it is striking, though, just thinking back to that the original collapse of um, Nicola Sturgeon's government over this gender recognition issue. I feel like it, that really kind of, for me, kind of sealed the debate that's been raging for some time, which is how important is this woke stuff really? Yeah. You know, um, th it's not really something which dominates certainly electoral politics. And yet here you had a political leader and a political party whose alleged project is to break up the United Kingdom. It's to get mm. Scotland out of the union. And yet she burnt the whole house down because she was convinced of this idea that there is no such thing as biological sex yeah. and that letting people in possession of a penis into a women's prison is probably not a big deal. I mean, that if anything is going to put to bed this idea that this has not become the kind of ideology of the sort of left technocratic ruling class, if mm. you like, then surely it's Nicola Sturgeon, who in the space of what feels like no time at all, has gone from being someone who dominated the Scottish political scene, um, who was fated, um, certainly south of the border, probably even more so than north <laughs> of the border, who was seen really as an embodiment of all that was kindly and wonderful about a certain type of politics, but has had this spectacular fall from grace because the voters noticed what the commentators didn't, which is that far from being progressive and cuddly and liberal and so on, this is a very strange and a very damaging ideology yeah. which is taken hold. And um, hopefully, you would think, she serves as a cautionary tale to, to others, but I dare say she won't, at least where the elite are concerned. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.